what a horrible shame that 95% of American women feel this way, hate their bodies, have a troubled relationship with food, and more than that, spend a really inordinate amount of time thinking about these things. Just like, what a waste. <laughs> you know, how many other amazing things could we be doing uh, with that mind share if we directed it elsewhere? This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today's guest is Christina Safran, an eating disorder advocate and co-founder and executive director of Project Heal, which has over 40 chapters nationwide. Christina, you are killing it. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Let's start by having you explain what is Project Heal. Sure. So Project Heal is the largest nonprofit in the country delivering prevention, uh, uh, treatment financing, and recovery support for people suffering from eating disorders. And it's an organization that I actually founded at 15 years old and in my own recovery from anorexia nervosa. So you founded this organization when you were only 15 years old. Yep, that is correct. My co-founder and I had actually met in treatment for anorexia at 13 years old, uh, though I was diagnosed with anorexia back when I was 10. My co-founder and I really helped one another to recover, developed like a healthy recovery-oriented friendship, and then uh, founded this at 15 in our own recovery. And really, the initial uh, movement or momentum behind the organization was that we had seen so many people who couldn't afford treatment, were kicked out of treatment early because their insurance um, stopped paying for it, and then got out and read the stats that, you know, treatment is $30,000 per month at the highest levels and often not covered by insurance companies. And so 90% of the 30 million Americans who suffer don't get treatment. And we were sort of like, this is horrible. We have to do something about this. And uh, started it. Uh, that, that was it. Naive, idealistic 15-year-olds who uh, started the organization like that. And you were still in the process of recovery yourself when you started it? Yeah, I would say certainly we were, we always say we were kind of 90% recovered. Um, and I think actually taking on the responsibility of being a role model and then having, frankly, having somewhere to channel all of that type A energy and perfectionism into uh, really brought us 100% into recovery. Well, that's interesting. So not only are you helping others with Project Heal, but it also facilitated your own recovery. Absolutely. And what's actually been really cool to see is that same process happen with all of our chapters now. I would say, you know, majority of them are in recovery from eating disorders and found it sort of at that same place in their own recovery. Um, and it's been really amazing to watch them all come fully into their own recoveries as well. Christina, what is the mission of Project Heal? So the mission of Project Heal is really to deliver uh, prevention, treatment, financing, and recovery support for, for people who are suffering. We've actually had a recent, really exciting mission expansion within the last year where we're actually now building out the first real peer support communities for people with eating disorders. Um, it's really interesting that peer support has not yet been implemented in the eating disorder space. It's a model 
that works incredibly well and has a lot of clinical validation in a number of other mental health spaces. And when you think of something that's cost-effective, easy to disseminate, um, you know, it's an incredibly successful model. And it's just never been implemented in the eating disorder field. So uh, that is what we are, we've started to do this year in 2017. Why do you think it hasn't been implemented there? I think that a big reason for that is just the eating disorder field in general has been so um, underdeveloped. Uh, So to give you a sense, I mean, for something that affects 30 million Americans estimated, eating disorder nonprofits collectively raise less than $10 million per year. So it's been an incredibly underdeveloped field in general. And I uh, I think one of the big reasons for that is actually that People really still view this as, frankly, a white rich girl vanity issue and a choice and not a real mental illness, which could not be further from the truth. I mean, eating disorders have some of the strongest genetic underpinnings of any mental illness, some of the strongest um, neurobiological underpinnings, and they have the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. Additionally, you know, they really do not see race, ethnicity, gender, body size. I mean, they affect people from all walks of life. But, you know, I think it really takes from a broader cultural perspective, kind of celebs, leaders, influencers speaking out and talking about how this has affected themselves and, you know, their family members and friends and and really pushing to put weight behind it, um, which hasn't happened so much in the past. But I, I think that's something that we're really trying to drive in terms of broader awareness. Certainly there are a ton of misconceptions about eating disorders. And you have to think that a lot of it has to deal with what we've seen in other areas that involve women's health, right? Like everything involving yeah. women's health somehow gets this level of shame, this taboo quality to it, this less valued quality to it. It really is kind of a reflection of, I don't know, it's kind of a reflection of larger societal misogyny or patriarchy, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the fact that It is a misconception that this only affects females because certainly males are affected, which you would expect for something that's heavily genetically and neurobiologically based, that there is more of an equal, you know, representation. That said, it still is primarily, I would say, 70% affecting females. And I do think that really contributes to a lack of, you know, funding, understanding, awareness for this issue. Certainly, I mean, even from research funding standpoint, I think, eating disorders, the research dollars per affected individual are something like 73 cents compared to something like schizophrenia or autism, where it's like 70 or 80 dollars per affected individual. Anything involving women's bodies seems to always get the least bit of priority in our society. Yep. But it's interesting because you're, you're bringing up that I, a point that I think very few people understand that it is highly genetic. Yeah. And I think- absolutely. If there's a greater understanding of how genetic it is, then there's going to be less of this kind of blaming that's done, right? That it's something that you could fix yourself. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think, you know, they are very, very complicated um, disorders, very complex to understand. But I like to explain it to people. um, I liken it very much to OCD, very, very similar brain structures involved there. And so, you know, for people who've never suffered, it's really, really hard to understand, you know, 
I know my friends and family were like, just eat, right? Um, and sort of imagining when I when I was struggling with my eating disorder, there was a point where I knew logically, you know, I'm killing myself. I look horrible. I'm ruining everything. This is I need to stop doing this. But no matter what I knew logically, I just could not stop the behaviors. And it's very, very similar to like someone who has a, you know, hand washing compulsion and and they just can't stop they know it's ridiculous they know it doesn't make any sense but th- that brain drive and compulsivity is so strong that they really can't stop and i find that that's kind of a helpful comparison for people to understand what it really feels like to be uh going through these disorders are there a lot of overlap like are there a lot of people who have ocd who also have eating disorders oh yeah Absolutely. Very strong overlap. And I would actually say, I mean, in terms of psychiatric comorbidity, eating disorders are so highly comorbid with so many. I mean, you never get someone who like just has an eating disorder. They're highly comorbid with OCD, lots of anxiety. There's like a 70% overlap with anxiety disorders, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which is one of the reasons, again, that they're, they're so tricky to to treat. In your organization, you're mostly focused on providing support to the women who are and girls who are suffering from eating disorders. Do you also provide any advice or services or direct people towards resources on how they, as someone who's a loved one or you know a, a family member of someone going through an eating disorder, should best support that person? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a, you know a big part of what some of our chapters do by spreading you know awareness and education. And really, the newest research on eating disorders is really supporting the idea that families and other loved ones are the best allies in um, the affected individuals' recovery. Actually. Up until pretty recently, this was not the common wisdom, uh, and this is a bit more background on the history of psychology and psychiatry, where there was a lot of parent blaming kind of going on in, in mental illness fields, and so a lot of the old wisdom kind of said that parents and other loved ones shouldn't be as involved with the treatment. We now know that that's completely opposite to how people should be treated, and again, families and loved ones are the biggest allies, and so we certainly do that. And actually, uh, in our next five years, we're currently obviously implementing the peer mentorship program, but in the next five years, we have it in our plans to actually build out a family and loved one mentorship program as well. That's great. I um, had a friend in college who was suffering pretty badly from anorexia. And as a friend, I was just very much at a loss on how best to help her, you know, how best to support her. Oh, totally. I mean, it's so complicated and tricky, and I think most people really don't know how best to support somebody. And what I also hear hear a lot is, especially from friends, well, I know something has to be done. I'm so worried about this person, but I just don't think I'm the person to say anything like we're not close enough and in nine cases out of ten everyone around the person is saying and thinking that exact same thing especially because as part of an eating disorder you're often isolating yourself pretty 
tremendously from from loved ones. So I think it's really important that loved ones really do get involved and, and have the proper kind of resources on how to talk to somebody who's struggling. It seems that's also a common thread amongst problems that predominantly affect women, that there's always this tendency, I think because of all the taboos that we have around women's bodies and women's sexuality and you know, kind of the power structures that have created these uh, what what veils of of that are supposed to cover all the time these issues of women, these private issues for women that women don't get the help they need. I mean, I'm thinking about domestic violence as another example mm-hmm. where I mean, it's not a mental health disorder, although they do abusers do harm the mental health of the victims, and maybe I guess it could in part be a mental health issue. But my point is. There's often this idea of, well, it's not my business. I shouldn't get involved. And I think that's all because of this kind of veil of shame around things. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is always our fault. (laughs) 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 So it's amazing that you started this organization when you're only 15 years old. What are some of your proudest accomplishments um, with the organization or, or in your career in general? Yeah, um, God, I mean, it's it's really amazing to look back on the last three years. I would say that's really been our major growth since, frankly, I graduated from college and have been able to, to do this more full time. And so we've grown our team actually this year from one and a half to six full time employees. So that's certainly a big accomplishment. Um, it's really, really incredible to look back on this year. And now we have like a real fully functioning team, heads of departments. And I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned from mentors is sort of one of the best things, your people are your best investments. And one of the best things that you can do as a CEO and leader is hire people who are better than you. And I really feel that way about our newest hires. I've just been tremendously impressed. And I think hirings are really, uh, it's tough and you have to spend a lot of time on it. And I, I just feel really great about the hiring process and, and the people we have now working with us. And I actually will point out that five out of six of our full-time employees are recovered themselves from eating disorders. That's amazing. So they really have complete firsthand experience and can identify with the people that you're helping. Absolutely. And, and real passion, obviously, for the mission and the cause. What are the goals for where you want to go next with Project Heal? It sounds like you're on a big you know, expansion plan and you're really growing. What, what you're talking about the peer network. That sounds very exciting. Are there other things that are kind of shorter, long-term goals that you're focusing on right now? Yeah, certainly. So there's a lot of excitement ahead. I mean, I think we're, we're incredibly focused on the peer support mentorship program, um, up through 2020. And so we actually just launched it this year with our, we launched our kind of proof of concept programs in our New York city and Philadelphia chapters in March. We sort of said, we have the model 80% down, not going to pretend to have it 100% down until we're on the ground and actually doing it. So we had a really small sample size, 12 mentors, 12 mentees. We're doing a lot of focus groups, interviews, learning what was working, what wasn't. And we've learned a tremendous amount. It's been going incredibly well. And now we're gearing up actually to launch in five more chapters. So LA, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, and Pittsburgh next month. Um, Right now, one of the big things that we did was build out a really comprehensive um, online training program for mentors, which is a seven-week 
interactive training. So we have about 45 mentors going through that right now. I think they're in week three of seven. Um, And that applicant pool was actually whittled down from an initial pool of about 150 people. So we're super excited for, for that launch. But our real goal is to be in 40 chapters, in our current 40 chapters by 2020, like I said. Um, And so that's going to be a big focus of ours for the next two years. Um, I should also mention one of the first things we did when we hired officially a director of chapters this year in January was close chapter applications so that we could, you know, strengthen the current chapters, weed out ones that weren't performing, and, um, We just recently reopened chapter applications about a month ago and already have 50 more in the queue. So (laughs) there's a lot of uh, grassroots momentum around the cause. And so perhaps we'll expand communities of healing beyond the beyond the 40 chapters. Maybe we'll have 80 at that point. (laughs) So that's one big thing. And then, uh, like I mentioned, uh, we have two more kind of things on our five-year goal agenda. So building out a parent and family loved one mentorship program uh, is is really important to us, and we'll be implementing that in the next five years. Um, and then we're also working with, there's one effective prevention program for eating disorders. Um, it's a research-backed program called The Body Project. And that's basically a program where um, girls go into middle schools, high schools, and college programs. And it's a peer-to-peer training program where they teach their peers to argue really vehemently against the thin ideal, define their values, and uh, just it's a it's a four week four hour program, and it has these incredible results that actually two years after the program it produces significant reduction in uh, eating disorder symptoms and behaviors. So like thin ideal internalization, body dissatisfaction, binging, purging. So fantastic results. And actually the researchers had come to us because they said, hey, wouldn't it be wonderful if having your chapter members who are new in their recovery facilitate the program, we really think it would help them to strengthen their own recoveries as well, because recovery is a really long process. And, you know, it's tremendously helpful to be talking the talk as you're walking the walk. So that allows us to have a really nice model where we really see communities of healing as being the like go-to on the ground first line of defense for anybody who is struggling with an eating disorder, worried about a friend or family member. We really see Project Heal's communities of healing as being the place to go. And the model is, you know, you can kind of, we have a place for everybody. So you can enter as a mentee. If you're doing well for about a year, you're incentivized to become a prevention leader in the schools. And then if you're doing well for two years, you're actually incentivized to become a mentor yourself. Um, So a really nice model. And then from a broader kind of awareness standpoint, uh, like I said, I think that's really, really important to driving this issue much further. And Project Heal has had some pretty tremendous success in engaging some sort of uh, non-traditional celebs and influencers and leaders to be involved in our cause. So Ariana Huffington's a big supporter. Um, The chief strategy officer of the San Francisco 49ers is on our board of directors, and he's hosting our big gala in two weeks, actually, at Levi Stadium. Got the NFL involved. Um, Our newest board member is writer, director, producer Marty Noxon, who actually this summer 
produced the first real major motion picture on eating disorders called To the Bone uh, that came out this summer. And it's, it's actually her own autobiographical story. So I think that, you know, we've had a lot of sort of broader events and, and folks in media and leadership sort of speaking out about this issue. And we certainly have seen the kind of ripple effect from that, that when you have people like Marty and Parag and Ariana, you know, step up and, and speak out about this sort of stuff, more people just feel so much more comfortable speaking out because again, it's 10% of the population. And I mean, everybody knows somebody and has some sort of personal experience with this. You said they feel comfortable speaking out. Well, we mentioned earlier that there's so much taboo and shame and around any issue involving women's bodies. But for you to start Project Heal, you had to really kind of put yourself out there and your experience out there. Was that really hard to do? I mean, how did you overcome any fear about doing that? Um, I guess a two-part answer. I mean, one of the positive things about starting something when you're so young is that you actually don't always realize the full implications of what you're doing. Um, and so I don't know that I really thought too much about it. I actually think the thing that was on my mind most critically when I was 15 founding it was whoa, now I really have to stay well because now I have a responsibility for others. And that actually healthy pressure was incredibly critical in my own recovery. You also mentioned the the program that was addressing the thin ideal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the thin ideal is and, and how it relates to eating disorders. Yeah, totally, totally. So thin ideal internalization, it's a a research term that we use to measure how much people believe that basically thin people are the best and everyone should aspire to achieving this, you know, super thin, crazy body type. And in our society, we just have such a crazy, unrealistic expectation for, you know, what females should look like and what female beauty is that's incredibly narrow. And the truth is that very, very, very few um women actually have a body type that is naturally, you know, a size zero or two and super, super skinny. Bodies come in all shapes and all sizes. And actually, you know, weight is a really horrible proxy for health. You can be incredibly healthy at a size two or at a size 16. Um, You know, there's just a much wider variety of healthy body shapes and sizes than we acknowledge. But it is incredibly dangerous growing up when young girls who are you know, naturally have a body type that is larger, that is meant to be a size 12 or a size 14, think that that's completely unacceptable and that the only way that they're, you know, going to be beautiful is if they achieve the size zero or two that's impossible for them. And that's what leads to a cycle of dieting, restricting, which leads to binging and purging, which leads to people not engaging in healthy behaviors, not working out and taking care of themselves. Actually, body dissatisfaction is a big contributor to both obesity and eating disorders that most people really don't realize. And actually, the American Academy of Pediatrics just put out a big position paper that doctors and parents shouldn't be telling kids to lose weight because it can contribute to both obesity and eating 
eating disorders. So anyway, I, I think one of the things that as eating disorder advocates we struggle with is this, it's a very fine line between what is disordered eating, body dissatisfaction, and what's an eating disorder. Because, you know, the truth is, unfortunately, that probably 95% of American women have body dissatisfaction and this thin ideal internalization and, and don't feel good about their bodies and have weird relationships with food. And how I sort of respond to it is, even if that's not a clinical eating disorder, what a horrible shame that, you know, 95% of American women feel this way, hate their bodies, have a troubled relationship with food, and more than that, spend a really inordinate amount of time thinking about these things. Just like, what a waste, <laughs> you know, how many other amazing things could we be doing uh, with that mind share if we directed it elsewhere? So, I think it's incredibly important to fight back about that cultural ideal um, and really promote a, a vaster understanding of, of what beautiful is and, you know, more diverse images for, for people to aspire to. I completely agree. And I think there are two levels to this, right? There's the level of saying that thin is what is beautiful. And then there's the second level, which is, Beauty is what matters for women. Yeah. It's what makes you valuable. Men often are not judged in that way or viewed that their worth depends on them being beautiful or right. handsome, right? <laughs> so I think it's like so many levels of patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally, totally agree. And actually, it's funny. One of my favorite blog posts um, was a reaction to the Dove's Real Beauty campaign. And it's a campaign that I love. I, I think it's awesome. And I think Dove has done a lot of good work to increase the representations of, of different body shapes and sizes and what beauty can be. Uh, that said, this blog post was a woman basically saying, look, like, I'm not beautiful and it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> You know, I was never a, a beautiful kid. What I was was the smartest kid in my class. I was incredibly hilarious. I was a stand-up comic. You know, I was the head of my math team. And, you know, if my mom had said to me, you know, I went to her and she said, you're the most beautiful girl in school, that would have been stupid. It would have been a lie. No, I wasn't. Like, that wasn't my greatest feature. However, there were all these other things that were so much more important uh, to what made me, you know, a really special person. And those are the qualities that we can, re we should really be celebrating. Like, beauty is just, it's, your appearance is static. It's, it's not changing. It's not something that you can really grow and develop and work on. And I think you're completely right. Like, there, there are so many other things about us as as women that we need to be celebrating. And the reason why I say it's patriarchy is because if you think about it, beauty is kind of judging women's value by their utility, their sexual utility to men yeah. in terms of men being driven, drawn to more attractive women. And often, of course, there's also the age, the ageism that comes along with that as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the vast amount of not just time, but money that women yeah. and girls spend on beauty, but also thinness and dieting and fitness itself is not harmful, but when it's only directed toward the thin ideal or the beauty ideal, it can be. That money goes to the corporations that are bombarding us with the messages that we're not good enough, right? right. So there's this 
incredible financial incentive to tell us that we're not good enough and that we need to be thin. Exactly. Exactly. And where could all that time and money go if it if it weren't going to these stupid pursuits? <laughs> I had this experience when I was with my family hiking in Vermont and we found this beautiful waterfall and this whole troop of girls showed up. They're probably in high school and they were wearing super, super sexy bathing suits, more makeup than I ever wore to the prom, <laughs> you know? All they were doing was posing for selfies in front of this waterfall. Yep. And it just disturbed me so extremely because I was wondering, where are the teenage boys? What are they doing right now? Right. These women not only were spending all this time to do this at that moment, they obviously had spent hours getting ready for it. Right. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. Whenever I see people with like makeup in the gym and I see it all the time, people out in nature, just like taking selfies, totally done up. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's upsetting. <laughs> Think of how powerful women would be if they did not spend all that time on beauty and all those that mental energy on feeling like they weren't good enough. Yeah, totally. And I'll also add in something that I tell sort of younger mentees a lot is that you attract the people to you um, who care about the things that you're kind of putting out into the world. And so if you're putting out this image that like appearance matters so tremendously and really trying to make yourself sort of perfect, those are the people you're going to attract into your life or people who care about that stuff. And there's sort of this downward spiral. Whereas I've found, you know, my most important relationships that really contribute to my core happiness are the relationships where my appearance is the absolute last thing that, you know, my friends love about me, my husband loves about me. Like, there are so many more important things about who I am as a person, and, and that's the stuff that matters. So I, I think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, in both good and bad ways. But it's tricky when you talk about the thin ideal that can make some people think that's all that eating disorders are about. Yeah. Right. And as you explained earlier, it can be, it's neurological, it's genetic, it's a mental health disorder, very similar to OCD. So how do you kind of address that issue without just simplifying it to, that, to being as simple as that? I know. I, I think that's been one of the most challenging things for uh, eating disorder advocates. I mean, one thing that's challenging about advocacy is that it doesn't so often allow for nuance. Uh, <laughs> and eating disorders are very, very nuanced issues. So I, I think it's certainly challenging. I think the way I simplistically explain it to a lot of people is you will never get an eating disorder if you never go on a diet. It is a necessary but not sufficient trigger. And so in a society where 95% of American women start a diet at some point in their lives because we do have this crazy thin ideal, you're inevitably going to get 10% who develop an eating disorder. Whereas in a society where that's not the beauty ideal and maybe, you know, 30% of women go on diets, you'll get a much lower number. Um, and we should also add in that you know, diets don't work. Uh, so I think it's important from a public health standpoint too to kind of think about that. So we're almost done with our time, but I wanted to ask, you've been in this process for since you're 15 years old of building this organization mm -hmm. with a very bold and, and large mission. 
What are some lessons that you've learned in building your organization that you kind of wish you would have known when you first started? Yeah, I think I got a couple. So one, perseverance is the most important thing. And I find it especially important to say now, 10 years in, we've had some success and we've had some good people rally around us and, and people come to us and are like, how did you get so successful? And it's like 10 years, you know, like 10 years of building this. Uh, I've often heard nonprofits described as like, you know, you go out and ask people for something 10 times and you got to be okay with nine rejections. You're just looking for that one. Yes. And so it's a lot of grit and perseverance and just, you know, keep going. That's been incredibly important to me. I also think that people are the most important thing. I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, certainly building up an amazing team um, and really, really focusing on culture. That was something that I didn't really realize when we were starting this, but having a positive team culture, especially we're a remote organization, so we're not all together in an office space. And that's been something that we've really realized we have to focus on a lot and really intentionally cultivate because it's incredibly important. Related to, you know, the staff people is getting amazing mentors. I think especially as, you know, a young leader with a fairly young team, it's been so important to surround myself with mentors and advisors who, you know, have done this stuff before, have grown organizations, have, you know, had experience in nonprofits and fundraising to really help guide me and and to be a gut check for a lot of things that we've done. So I think that's been a huge catalyst to our success. And finally, I think something that I recently heard that that really resonates with me as a leader is I think a big role of a executive director is you kind of got to take um, less credit for the successes of the organization and and more of the blame for the failures of the organization um, and and really be okay with that and and I think that is really true and I think it's really important so that's something that you know I'm I'm still learning and trying to do more. That sounds very hard to do. <laughs> You're like, I started this, but I don't get any of the credit. And I only get the blame. Well. <laughs> but you get a lot of, I mean, I, I think that especially because the organization is so much of it is the brand of my co-founder and I, you know, we, we do end up getting, you know, a lot more of the, the credit. And so I think it's really important to really, really celebrate the others in the organization because they are what keeps the ship moving and running and and helps us to build all of this. Well, Christina, for our listeners to find you and Project Heal on the web, where should they go? Absolutely. Um, Our website has a wealth of information. It's the Project Heal. H-E-A-L dot org. Um, and then we have a really active Facebook and Instagram page. And those are just uh, Project Heal. You can find us there. Thank you so much for your time, Christina. This has been such an interesting conversation. And I wish, wish you the best of luck as you continue on with your very ambitious and super important mission. Yeah, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.